parents baptizing their children in the Lord is one of the greatest joys that I I experience as a pastor. Uh, parents talk to your kids about Jesus. If they choose, if they're like, I found out about Jesus through my mom and dad. You're going to be up there in those baptismal waters. I really believe wholeheartedly that the Great Commission starts in our families. Really does. And so seeing that fulfilled through the whole family today is, is just a joy. It is just a joy. And also to see Jason baptized as well. And so we want to see more of that, don't we? Yeah. You know what that means, right? You guys got to tell others about Jesus. That, that's what happens. You start sharing about Christ, whether it's inside your families or with other people whom God brings in your life, you have that opportunity then to share with them the most important message that you can possibly share. And maybe you find yourself at a time later on, as you've shared who knows how many times with them, up in those baptismal waters with them and fulfilling the Great Commission for yourself. That's what I want to see for every single one of you, but it takes us going out and sharing that. And ironically, that, isn't that really what Christmas is all about, right? Christmas is all about the sharing of God's love, first through Jesus coming as a little child for us to fulfill the promises of God. And us being able to go out and share that good news with others. And this week we read, for those of you who may not have been to our church before, we read together as a congregation during the week. We have six days that we're reading uh, the Word of God together, the message that comes on Sunday morning, whether myself or Pastor Mark, Pastor John, any of us who come up and share, we're sharing from what we've read this past week as a congregation. This past week we read Matthew chapter 21 through 25. How many of you have read that this week? These are some of my favorite chapters in all of the scripture, sincerely. And we begin, I'm just going to give you guys a quick rundown of what happens because what we're seeing here is Passion Week. We, we see the triumphal entry. We see Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem all during this time, right? So he comes in, and we're going to spend a lot of time in 21, so I'm going to kind of skip over that a little bit. We have the tri- triumphal entry. And then Jesus goes on to some other teachings with the parable of the wedding banquet and um, paying taxes to Caesar. And we, we see the Sadducees and the Pharisees trying to trip Jesus up in his words. And so they give him all these questions and scenarios in which they can hopefully either get the crowds to turn against him or to accuse him of some great wrong, which He always answers in such a way that confounds them. And at the end of this chapter, he decides he's going to ask them a question. And after he asks them the question, he says, you know, whose son is the Christ? Oh, David's son. Then how does David call him Lord? And quotes Psalm 110. And from that time on, nobody asked him any more questions. It's just infuriating when they're better at that than you are, right? Like, I want to frustrate him, but he ends up frustrating me, right? That's what a lot of you say to me when I'm trying to mess with them. So, yeah, you youth know what I'm talking about. And then he goes on in chapter 23, and he hits these seven woes. This is probably, in in our culture today, this is a chapter everybody would avoid because Jesus doesn't sound like the loving Jesus that we would think in the scriptures, right? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, hypocrites, 
for you travel the world to find a, a, a disciple of your own. And when you find one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's not very loving, is it? And the entire chapter is that way. And I believe 100% that chapter 23, believe it or not, is done out of love for these who are stiff-necked against the gospel. How many of you, be honest, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be a tough question, be honest, and I'm going to take a look at the hands that are raised. How many of you are the type of person needs to be punched in the face for you to listen to somebody, figuratively speaking? That you give them all the niceties in the world, you're, you, you, know, you just blow them off. It's not a big deal. Oh, they said this, whatever. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. You kind of have to have somebody get in your face and punch you in the face before you're even going to listen, right? <laughs> I love the fact that we have hands raised and now fingers pointing to other people. Okay, so. And the truth of the matter is, I can be this way myself. The, the, the problem with that is, this is what Jesus is doing. Chapter 23, he is punching these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these teachers of the law in the face. He is giving them the hard truth of what the reaction of them to him is going to ultimately be. Unless they humble themselves and accept him as Lord and Savior because they've been fighting him every step of the way. At the end of this chapter is a very interesting statement. Verses 38 and 39 on this chapter 23 says, Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The irony is that's the exact phrases of the people who were chanting and excited about Jesus coming in on a foal of a donkey in chapter 21. Until you have that attitude about me, You'll not see me again. And if they never have that attitude, I'm not going to see him again. We'll be in eternity with them. I believe this is a love letter to them. And then, last two chapters talk about signs at the end of the age. The disciples talk to them about what's it going to be like at the end of the age. And so Jesus tells them. That the love of most will grow cold and only he who stands firm to the end is going to be saved. Talking about the perseverance of the saints. Talks about all the signs that are going to happen and how brothers going to betray brother against one another on account of Jesus. Chapter 25 talks about the lifestyle of the believers in Christ, what they're supposed to be. So you have the parable of the virgins, and you have the parable of the tenants. And these two parables, what you have are these people who are kind of waiting around the last second to do God's will, which means they're not really Christians. They still want to live for themselves rather than live for God, and then hope that they know the timetable to get things together before Jesus arrives. Doesn't work out for them very well. Five foolish virgins have the lamps, uh, they don't have any oil, and instead of going out and getting oil, they're, they're asking the other ones, you guys are ready? Give us some of your oil. It's like, no, because 
the bridegroom could come. The tent finally leave, and then the bridegroom comes, and they're left shut out. Parable of the talents is the same thing. I've given you five talents. Work it. Make make more for me. The one with the one talent buries it, does nothing with it. The sheep and the goats at the very end of this section of Scripture, Jesus said, I'm going to separate you from sheep and goats, those of you who were doing my will and those of you who were not. Remember, this, this whole idea of faith and works is intrinsically tied together. You cannot separate them as much as you want to. Yes, we are saved by faith, by grace, through Christ, to do good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And we see that theme consistently all throughout. All throughout the scripture. We see it all in what Jesus says right here. But today we're going to look at chapter 21. We're going to look at the triumphal entry. We're going to look at this this first entrance into Jerusalem. The impression that he makes. The sermon is titled... What king are you prepared for? What king are you prepared for? And, and this is not some sort of false dichotomy between the baby in the manger and the preacher Jesus and, and the Jesus who died on the cross and the Jesus who rose from the dead and the Jesus who returned triumphantly because that's the same Jesus. The irony of chapter 21 as I, as I read it this week is that there is a parallelism to it to Jesus' birth. And we're going to kind of look at that together. It's really interesting to me. There's a parallel. It's not exact parallelism, but I think that some of the characters that we see, and when I say characters, I just mean people, okay, because these were real people who were there. But we see some of, some of these same type of reactions replaying from Jesus' birth. And hopefully you guys will see that as we do that together. So if you will with me, turn to chapter 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt and by her. By her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, let him, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughters of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So we look at this passage of scripture and what's really, really interesting in it is that we see a great throng of people excited that Jesus is coming. He is fulfilling, as Matthew continues to say, as it is written in the prophets, right? We see that 16 times. And even though that's mentioned 16 times, there are other quotes from the Old Testament that are sprinkled all throughout Matthew. Matthew is continually pointing to Jesus fulfilling that which was to come, right? And so him coming in Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey meant two things. Number one, he's coming in peace and to bring peace. Number two, He's fulfilling. This is the king that was promised by God according to the scriptures. And how is this any different than when we look at the first Christmas, we see shepherds that are there, and we see that a little baby is going to be born in Bethlehem according to what the prophet said, just like we read earlier in Matthew. When they were quizzed, where, where's, the, where's the Messiah to be born? He's supposed to be born in, this, you know, son, in the town of David, in the town of Bethlehem. And so when the angels come and they proclaim in a mighty throng, much like Jesus entering into Jerusalem, being proclaimed in a mighty throng, Hosanna in the highest, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Aren't we hearing kind of the same thing? This proclamation that the king is born, that the king is here, that the king is doing what he said he was going to do. Praise God. And all the people are excited about Jesus in the same way the angels were at his birth. Pretty cool in my opinion, honestly. He goes in there, he, he clears out the temple, the children are shouting, blessed be the, you know, the name of the Lord. They're saying, do you hear this? And Jesus says, haven't you read in the scriptures that from the, from the lips of babes and infants that I'll be praised? Psalm 8 too, by the way. Man, such a, such a cool parallel to me. Jesus is pointing to fulfilled scripture. Jesus has a throng of people who are excited at his coming and as his presence entering into the city of the king. It's pretty awesome. So I see the children as being the angels. I really do. I think it's pretty awesome. The children and the crowd that are there. It's pretty pretty amazing. And then there's this strange account that happens in the middle. Verse 18. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask in prayer. 
It's a really unusual account, just kind of slipped in here in the middle. Have any of you kind of wondered in the middle of this whole Passion Week that's going on, you had this random account of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And, and there's a number of things that might be a little perplexing about it. Number one, it's not the season for figs. So you wouldn't expect to find figs on the tree. Jesus curses the fig tree, and it says immediately it withers. It's not like it happened before their eyes, because uh, another gospel says the next day they went out, and that same fig tree would withered. So it had withered either overnight or by the next day, and it, it's just totally like that, okay? And they're amazed by what they see because they know how agriculture works. It just doesn't happen. You don't just get a killing of a tree and just withered up, withered in a day. And so they're, they're questioning how did this happen? Why did this need to happen? Why is this little segment in the middle of all this grandiose teaching and miracles and the entering of Jerusalem? And how in the world does this connect to Christmas? And where's the parallelism? I don't get it. It makes no sense. And yet it's right there. See, that if you think about it, the disciples have gotten used to Jesus' miracles. Healing of the sick, that's just what they've been doing everywhere that they go. And there were other faith healers during that time. But where they are always amazed is when it comes to Jesus' authority above nature, whether it's the calming of the waves, calming of the wind, walking on the water, and now the withering of this fig tree. Why is this important? Why is the fig tree important? Jesus has just stormed the temple. Jesus has just kicked out all the money changers. Jesus has kind of made a stand that is going to get the ire of those who are against him really upset. When they go back to Jerusalem again, he's just kicked out all of the money changers from the temple. All the things that, that those who have been religious and in that, that time period, very comfortable. And he's upset those things. How many of you like change? Raise your hand. Yeah, we don't, do we? I mean, the idea of something upsetting the apple cart just for no reason whatsoever kind of makes us matter at other people, doesn't it? Seriously. I've heard of churches that have fought over carpet. That's stupid. It just speaks to the nature of how much we hate change. That we would rather fight each other rather than have carpet. A certain color or not a certain color or whatever. Same thing's going to happen to them. It's about to get real. And Jesus, in this moment where things are about to get real, curses a fig tree out of season and it withers to remind the disciples of who he is and why they still need to follow him when things get hard. Is that any different than what we see in the Christmas story when we look at Mary and Joseph? Joseph find out, finds out that Mary is pregnant with child. That is unexplained. And she can say, this is from God. I did not do this. I did not cheat on you because this is the only time it's happened in all of history. 
And it's about to get hard because Joseph is thinking about divorcing her quietly because he's a righteous man. And God intervenes in much the same way to say, this is real, this is true. You can take Mary as your wife and understand that she and you have been perfectly faithful. That without that intervention, things could have been much different, couldn't it? And knowing that things were about to get hard when Herod was going to go kill all of the babies, he gives, what, another dream to Joseph saying, take the child down to Egypt where you guys will be safe. We see God intervening in both the lives of Mary and Joseph and in the disciples' life here to give confidence that their calling and their belief on who Jesus is is true. Because they're going to need it because it's going to get hard. And so this section right here in the figs, tree, and withers is Mary and Joseph and the disciples because they're standing faithfully in the Lord. And they need to stand faithfully still. And then we go to the last section, which I'm going to break up into the two parts here because I find this first one just intriguing personally. Verse 23 as we continue on in Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Going back to the upending of all of the stuff that they're used to, right? Things are about to get hard. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And you, and, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. What I find interesting about this little section of Scripture right here is that now the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they're coming at Jesus and they're saying, by what authority do you have to do all that you're doing? Upending everything in the temple, making a mockery of what we have set up for worship to make things easier for everybody to worship so they could change out stuff in the temple. So let me ask you a question. Baptism of John? Heaven or or God? We're we're not going to tell you. Neither will I tell you by what authority. But the irony is, in his next parable, he does tell him by what authority. Right? Because he then goes on and says, John came to show you the way of righteousness. And you didn't believe him. 
you don't want to answer that question because you don't want me to be Lord. That's really what it comes down to. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all of these who are the, the, what you would consider the scum of the earth who are not worthy of the kingdom of heaven, they did believe, they did repent, they are entering in the kingdom of God before you. Interesting, right? What an interesting thing to say. And again, Jesus ties together actions and intentions, doesn't he? Because these two sons, one says, I'm going to go, but he doesn't do anything. And the second one says, I'm not going to go, but then changes his mind and does it. And he says, which one did my will? Well, it's the one who actually did his will. Come to church all your life, but you don't do anything that God says, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of eternity. Not my word. That's what we read all this week. That's what you read throughout the word of God. We talk about fruit, and we're about to talk about more fruit, because guess what? Jesus ends this entire passage on the parable of the tenants as he continues this identification of this last set of people we're going to talk about today. Verse 33 Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He then rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And when the harvest time approaches, he he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and stoned a third. They sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become this capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And so, obviously, this last parable is about the chief priests and the Pharisees, the ruling class, right, of, of the people of Israel. Because they're not doing what God wanted them to do. Here's the promised king, and instead of welcoming him with open arms, they see him as a threat to their way of life. And so their only response is, we have to get rid of him. We need him arrested. We need him killed. We need him out of the way. And they plot to get rid of Jesus. And we look back and we see the exact same attitude with Herod. 
when Jesus was born. As a matter of fact, there was a saying in Rome that it was better to be Herod's dog than it was to be one of his family members. He killed so many of his family members because he wanted his kingship to endure and did not want a challenger to his throne. Not a lie. You can look it up. It's historical fact. And so under that guise, when he hears that the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem, guess what he wants to do? I want to exterminate the one that was promised. These wise men who come into the, into the king's court and say, where is the king who is to be born? We have come to worship him. And Herod was, Herod was anxious and afraid and all of Jerusalem with them because when Herod's anxious and afraid, everybody's anxious and afraid. Where is this child to be born? And then the scribes and the Pharisees uh, turned around and said, well, there, he's supposed to be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Go and find this child so that I might worship him as well. Being warned in a dream after the wise men had came and worshipped Jesus, they went another way, back to their land. And when Herod found out about this, he was furious. And he made plans to kill every child under the age of two at the moment of the appearing of the star so that he could preserve his kingdom. And had it not been for God's intervention to lead them down to Egypt... He would have killed Jesus before his time. Don't we see that same spirit in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests of the law? I mean, we see the same type of people. And so we might be looking at the triumphal entry and the entrance into Jerusalem and the city of the king, but the reaction is the same. And it leaves us with the question that we really have to ask ourselves. What king are we prepared for? You know, it's interesting because there's only two answers to this question. You either fall on the side, I am prepared for the king that God has promised. I look forward to his coming. I look forward to the day that I rejoice because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. I want to listen to him. I want to follow him with all of my heart and all of my mind and with all of my soul and with all of my strength. Or I'm going to find myself on this side which says I want a Jesus of my own making who agrees with my lifestyle, agrees with what I say, agrees with what I want to do. That there's nothing to be broken in me or fixed about me because I'm fine the way that I am. And a person who finds himself on that side of the equation will spend their life trying to crucify Jesus. To make Jesus' straightforward teachings that a follower of Christ is supposed to do, if we read in the Great Commission as we will next week, 
that we are called to obey everything Christ commanded us, these people make it their lifestyle to subvert the things that God has commanded to try and make Jesus say the exact opposite of what he actually said. They exist in our culture. They're all over the place. They've always existed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, guess what? Fall under that category. That they would go so far as to crucify the very king that they say they're looking forward to. And for those who would not bend the knee at the Jesus whom God has promised, God has said, according to his word, that this cornerstone will crush them. This is why you get the woe passages in Matthew 13. This is what awaits you. Those of you who will not bend the knee to Jesus, he will crush you. Not because he wants to. He has done all of this, and as we'll talk about next week, taking the penalty for our sins. But guess what? We're unwilling. We're unwilling to be broken at at the foot of the cross. At the person of Jesus Christ is what he wants. And so we continue to justify what we want to do opposed to what Jesus calls us to do. To produce the fruit of his kingdom. It will be given to another that will produce my fruit. Not my words, that's his. And so we only have two sides of this equation and Which Jesus are we prepared for? Are we prepared to walk in obedience to his commands, believing he is the promise that God has set forward, being broken again and again by our disobedience to him in repentance that turns back? Are we going to be the stiff-necked ones who continue to want to do what the world does, want to do what we want to do? twisting the words of Jesus to say the exact opposite of what he actually says? No hope for that. His triumphal entry brings forth this decision of which king are you preparing for? Because only one of them's real. This Christmas, that's what we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves this every week. Who are we living for? We living for us? We living for Jesus? We're doing what we want to do? We want doing what he wants us to do. None of us are going to do it perfect. I stand as a sinner equally convicted of God before you, of need of repentance for those sins. But I would rather be broken again and again by the Lord who is than to make up a Lord that doesn't exist for which I'll be crushed for. Like I said, this isn't a, a question of whether or not we're talking about a Jesus as a baby or a preacher or a crucified Savior or a coming King. This is about the Jesus who is versus the Jesus who isn't that we want to make up. If we're making up Jesus, we'll crucify him again and again and again and again. 
that doesn't lead to life. But if we're broken by him, humbled in repentance, understanding that he's the one that God has promised us, we'll have the promise that he has for us in Christmas and we will be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will you stand with me? I hope that you guys are preparing for the Jesus who has this Christmas season. There is no greater joy than serving this Jesus who lived and died on the cross for me and for you, who promises you and I eternal life, that we celebrate every facet of his life because of what he's done for us, because he's the God who is. I pray that's the one you're serving. If it's not, it can change today. And that's the awesome thing about it. It's going to be an awesome Christmas. Let's make sure that the Jesus that we are serving is the Jesus that God revealed him to be from the beginning of time and promises us through all of eternity so that we can spend our days with him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for the season that we get to celebrate Christ. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that you sent the Jesus who is as a little baby to grow up among us, that he might enter into Jerusalem, that he might die on the cross for our sins, Lord, be raised again, be promised to come back as a conquering king, O Lord, to establish his kingdom forever and ever. God, help us to make sure that we are serving the Jesus who is not the Jesus of our own imagination that would make us an enemy of Christ. Help us, dear Heavenly Father, to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God that people might see Jesus in us. Help us to extend the grace of Jesus Christ to those around us that we might see our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our our co-workers, Lord, come to Jesus Christ to be invited into the wedding feast of the Lamb, to be with us in heaven, to help us to realize that what we're living for is not here on this earth, but in eternity, a real eternity with you. Help us to introduce those whom we love to the Jesus who is and follow him with all of our hearts. And help us, dear Heavenly Father. None of us are going to follow perfectly. That when we fall, that we repent, that we turn away and find the grace that is there for every one of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. Just lift that up before you in this season where we celebrate. Help us to celebrate well. Help us to glorify Christ every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.